Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Some say he never existed. He's just a myth. I'm just a legend. Some say he was a carpenter, but a kind of carpenter philosopher. You know, good with teaching, good with ideas, and plenty of helpful things, but somebody who was blown out of all proportion by his overzealous followers. Some say he was a wonderful teacher, should be respected by all, but somebody who met a really tragic end, who died before his time. Some say he was a radical, standing up for social justice, standing up for the oppressed and the weak, but he died before his time, and so it's up to us to fulfill his legacy. And some don't say much at all. In fact, there's billions of people who are and live in the world now who have yet to hear his name. Some people don't say much at all about him, but what do you say? Who cares what everybody else says? What do you say? Who is Jesus? That's the question that hangs over the whole of the book of Mark, the book that we'll be in for the next few months on Sunday mornings. But not just the question that hangs over us, but the question that hangs over the whole of history. Who is this person who divides even our time? So when I look at the date and I find out what day it is today, it leads me back to him. Who is this who divides all history? And where do we find an answer to that? Maybe I could watch some TV documentaries. Maybe I could do some highly academic research on YouTube and find out uh, what people on there think. Maybe I could do some actual reading and go to a library and find out what um, various people think. Maybe I could look up Wikipedia or uh, who knows, I've got lots of other options. Try and remember, dredge up from the depths of my brain all those things I learned in RE class back in the day. But where am I gonna find an answer? Well, why don't we turn to one of the eyewitnesses? Why don't we turn to one of the people who actually knew Jesus, who met him, who knew those others who met him and saw and heard and touched and tasted and lived with him, and then wrote down that account. Well, we're going to turn to Mark's gospel. What better way than to see what somebody who saw him saw? So Mark's gospel, if you have a Bible, turn with it to me. Uh, turn to, um, uh, to Mark's gospel in, uh, in the church Bibles, page 1002. It's about three quarters of the way down. So Mark, Mark's gospel, chapter 1 and verse 1, and Mark doesn't waste any time in telling us who Jesus is. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel. That means good news, momentous news, world-shattering news, really, really good news, good news about Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. Three things that he tells us. He lays it out straight, straight at the beginning. He's Jesus. He's a real man. He, he's not a myth or a legend. He really lived in history. Flick your eyes down to verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus actually lived in history in a place, in a town, worked an actual job, got splinters in his actual real hands. His feet didn't float off, you know, two feet off the ground. He walked and got blisters and stinky feet, and he grew up feeding from his mother's breast and vomiting and doing all the other things that babies do. And he he grew up as a human, as a person. He was a real man. He was Jesus of Nazareth. And he was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised anointed king, the one who's promised from before the world began the one who's anointed, who's given special power and authority, who 
comes in the name of God himself to be the king over everything, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. He's the king of everything. And if that, as if that weren't enough for a little carpenter from Galilee to be the Messiah, the promised king who would come to fix everything, he's not just that, but he's the son of God. On a par, on the same level as the one who lends you breath and each heartbeat, the God who invented physics and everything else that there is in the world. He's the son of that God, and he owns you and he made you. This is who Jesus is. It's a big start, isn't it? Mark doesn't kind of build it up slowly but surely and eventually get to the conclusion at the end. He tells you right at the beginning exactly what he thinks. But interestingly, it's the only time he tells you what he thinks. It's as if he says, this is who Jesus is, but don't believe me? Okay, well, sit back. Let me tell you a story. Although, actually, you can't really sit back because it's such a fast-moving story. You'll um, hear it when, when we read it in a minute. It's a bit like a, a parachute, that first line. If you think of a parachute, imagine that. I don't have one at home to bring in, but imagine a parachute there. It's all packed up with all the ropes and um, strings and silk. I don't know if they still use silk, but you know, whatever fabric. It's all packed up nice and tight. That's what Mark's done in verse 1. And he's saying to you, okay, fine, you don't trust the, the parachute? Well, let me tell you the theory. But fine, if you don't trust that that's really a parachute in there, let me pull the ripcord, let it all out, and you can see it. You can get into it and hang your weight off it, see if it works. See if it will rescue and save your life and enjoy the view on the way down. Don't just trust me that it's a parachute because I wrote parachute on the side of a bag. Let me open it. Let me, actually, you pull the ripcord. Let me lay it all out for you and you can see for yourself who this Jesus really is. That's what he's doing. And then he says, sit back, let me tell you a story. But... There's a question we need to ask before we get to Jesus. The question is, who on earth is Mark? Who on earth is Mark to tell us about Jesus? I mean, hold on, but were you even there? Did you even see it? Can we even trust that this book is, is really real? There's plenty of good reasons. There's evidence beyond reasonable doubt that this really is a document from the first century, from about three decades after Jesus walked the earth. That means in, in the time of the eyewitnesses, that Mark was... Not just some random guy writing a few hundred years later, not a monk somewhere, I don't know, in Germany, writing his, uh, his story and imagining it and adding little details as he goes along. Mark was somebody who actually saw these things happen. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he was working with Peter and working with Paul for a time. You can go to the book of Acts, if you like, and read the stories about Mark. I'm sometimes called John Mark. John's his Hebrew name, Mark's his Roman name. So Mark was somebody who followed Peter, and you can feel Peter's character. He was one of the leaders of the disciples, one of the eyewitnesses. You hear a lot about him in this story and in all of the other stories of Jesus. Peter's a central character. Mark worked with him. And you can imagine a point where Peter's getting old, his, his time has almost come, and Mark thinks, we've got to write this down. We can't just rely on the apostles, you know, those eyewitnesses of Jesus going around telling people, we've got to write this down so we can copy it and pass it out and make sure that the world knows, not just by word of mouth, but by writing. And so he does. And so what he writes down sounds an awful lot like Peter. Go home over lunch maybe or this afternoon if you have a spare 30 seconds. Look up Acts chapter 10 and look for Peter's little sermonette, little Bible study that he does in Cornelius' house. Acts chapter 10 comes just after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, what happened just after Jesus died and rose again. Acts chapter 10, and you'll see basically Mark's gospel in about 10 sentences. This is Peter's teaching. It's Peter's character. Peter was a vigorous man. Peter was a guy who rushed around putting his feet in, uh, in his mouth almost all of the time, getting himself in trouble. And so you'll see as we read through it, 
there's this word that keeps coming up immediately, immediately, immediately. As soon as that happened, this happened next. It keeps on going and going. So Mark was a man who really saw these things happen. Mark was a man who spent time with others who saw these things happen and who wrote them down. So what is Mark? It's an eyewitness account. It was written really early on within the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses and then publicized. So if anybody wanted to refute it, they could do it. It wasn't done in a corner. It was a public document. And it reads like history, too. I hope you'll see that as we read it and as you go home and read it through the next um, few days. You'll see all these just weird details that you don't really need, like when they feel hungry, when they forgot to bring bread, or what the color of the grass was where they were sitting at that time. It reads like real history, like a story. So come on, let's look at the story and read it together. Mark says he has good news, momentous news, that there's a God in heaven who has a son, that he's the promised king who's come to fix everything. But don't just take my word for it. Let me tell you a story. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful little story. We thank you that it's so compact and quick and so beautiful and rich. So Father, we ask now as we come to your word, would you guide us by it? Would you, by your spirit, make Jesus walk off the pages and into our hearts? Would you help us to see him, the one who really is alive and living today, who's living and active? Would you and bring him to our sight today, that we might see him and love him and know him and drop everything to come and follow him. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 2. It's written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. That's a lot of people. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the desert and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. I'll pause there for the moment. I want you to see four things that begin with P today. Um, Four little parts of the story that we really can't miss. They're this, that Jesus is the promised one. He's the pleasing one. He's the prepared one who wields all the power that he needs to turn the world upside down. But does he? Does he turn the world upside down? He's the promised one, the pleasing one, prepared one with all power. So four little Ps, if that helps you remember things. So he's the promised one. Well, Mark's dropped this bombshell on us right at the beginning, hasn't he? This is Jesus. There is a God in heaven, and he sent his son to fix everything in the world. Uh, But then he starts talking about some other guy some random strange-looking guy who wanders out of the wilderness. And what on earth is going on? It's a bit of a strange thing, isn't it, to 
to tell you all about Jesus and then to cut away to some other character. It feels strange to us, but it would have been amazing for these people. Mark was probably writing to Roman Christians, so not Jews, but Roman Christians who maybe knew a little bit of of the Bible. He's writing to people under real pressure as well, who are really, really struggling. And the first thing he tells them is, this is the promised one who's been promised forever, who's been um, being prepared for for a long time. Listen to what he says. It's written in Isaiah the prophet. I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Just look at that prophecy. It's, it's actually part of Malachi and Isaiah together. Isaiah is the thing that really makes sense of what Malachi was saying. These are some of the last words that are spoken in the Old Testament. If you just flick back with me a few, page, a few pages, you get to Malachi. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it has this promise in the very last line. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So they're waiting for Elijah. Now that little page, if you turn to it, this one little blank page that says New Testament in my Bible, that represents 400 years of silence. There was no other word from the Lord after that until this moment. 400. Imagine what that would be like. I mean, it's hard enough if you are a Netflix subscriber or you know, you're into that. You watch one episode of something, you get to a, a cliffhanger, and this little box pops up with a countdown. It gives you about 12 seconds to wait until you get the next episode. Imagine that cliffhanger right there, and we usually skip on. Come on, we want to know what's happening next. I don't, I'm not, I don't even have 12 seconds to, late, to wait, but let alone 400 years. This cliffhanger, which is not just about the stories you've been watching, but about your life, that God is going to come and fix everything, but not yet. And then there's 10 years and 20 and one generation and two generations and seven, eight, nine, 10 generations. And soon it's 400 years have passed and God hasn't spoken to us recently. And can you feel the weight of that for Old Testament Christians, for people waiting for God to come and fix things? Go and, and Google intertestamental period. Work out what happened in that 400 years. It was horrible stuff, really hard things to cope with. But God hasn't spoken to them, but he's given them this promise that one day somebody would come. Elijah, this great prophet from back way earlier in the, old, in the Old Testament, would come again. And so feel that whole weight of Old Testament expectation. And then one day, this weird guy wanders out of the wilderness, out of the desert. I mean, the wilderness, the place that people go to meet God. You remember Moses and the burning bush, and then Moses on the mountain in the wilderness, and the whole of the people of Israel in the wilderness, and almost all the time, God is meeting people in the wilderness, and here comes somebody from the wilderness, dressed in hair, camel's hair, and the skin of animals, eating honey and locust wings, looking a bit like one of the twits, I imagine, if you read those stories, you know, with all these bugs sticking in his his beard, a very strange-looking man, but why on earth does he tell us about his clothes? Well, go back and, and read 2 Kings 8 and verse 10, and you'll see 2 Kings 8, verse 10, if you want to write it down, it's exactly what Elijah was wearing. Way back in the day, this great prophet who's promised again, that's Elijah. So this is somebody, this is the new Elijah, a great prophet who's come to tell you that the king is on the way. He does exactly what prophets do as well. He tells you about the future, and he tells you what to do right now. He foretells what's coming forth, but he's, and, and then he's foretelling what, you, what will happen in the future. Now and in the future, repent right now, turn back to God. John is the one who's cutting away through all of the jungle of human sin, 
so that there would be a clear way into our hearts, so, so that our hearts would be focused on waiting for Jesus. John is making a way. He's the great one. Um, but there is someone greater, he says. Somebody who he's not even worthy to kneel down and untie their sandals. That was a horrible job, uh, if you know any of the history of this time. Even aristocrats and posh people wore sandals. And they walked around on dirt roads that had all sorts of things on them. And their feet would be stinking and horrible, caked in mud, if they ever walked pretty much anywhere. And so you would get home and you wouldn't undo your own shoes. You would get a servant to come and do it. What a humiliating and embarrassing job that would be, a horrible job. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do a servant's humiliating job when it comes to Jesus. It says in one of the other Gospels, sums it up like this, John says, he must become greater, I must become less. This great prophet of the Old Testament, the one who's broken that 400 years of silence, the one who's introducing the one that we've all been waiting for, and he says, I'm nothing compared to him. Have you ever said that when it comes to Jesus? Or when it comes to actually anyone else, for that matter. But ask yourself, is your life all about Jesus in the pattern of John's? Or do you live your life as if he should be living his life for you? As if I should become greater and, and he is the one to get me there. He should become less. Do you live as if he's the one who should be giving you all that you want? He should be answering all of my prayers as I want them to be answered. He should be making sure my life goes as I want it to go. That he answers all of my questions and fits into all of my preconceived ideas of God. And then I'll believe. And then I'll come and, and bow the knee. And then I'll come and follow him. No, look, if Jesus is Lord, if even the great John, the greatest man in all of history, Jesus says at some point, if even he can't stoop down and untie his stinking sandals, then look, this really is the Son of God, isn't it? This really is somebody far beyond our wildest dreams. This really is the promised one. So what are we going to do? A little application. We've, we've got to admire him. Can't we? The one who was promised from before the foundation of the world, that all the world has been waiting for, not just the Jews, but everyone whose heart aches for things to be better. This is him. The promised one has come. And so we've just got to stand back and admire him. That before we did anything, before you were even born and started doing good things or bad things, before any of our history, he came and he died for us. We didn't have to persuade him to come. He wanted to. He planned to come and serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we've got to stand back and admire him, first of all, but then also realize he's not just some recent flash in the pan. He's not just like the VHS. Do you remember the VHS? It kind of didn't exist for a while, and then it existed, and we enjoyed it for a while, and collected all of our collections of, of films and, and uh, VHS, and then they moved on to... Betamax after that, anyone remember Betamax? And then DVDs and now Blu-rays, and now VHS, nobody really uses them much anymore. Most of our ones are molding and gone or given to charity shops. Jesus is not like that, just popped up for a while for some people and then died away again. Jesus is much more like oxygen. He's been around from the beginning, in fact, before the beginning. And he, in him, you live and move and have your being, even if you don't realize it, even if you know nothing of the science of oxygen, even if you don't even know the words oxygen. You need it, and you breathe it, and it keeps and sustains your life. Well, Jesus is like that, promised and existing before the foundation of the world. Your heart should be aching for him to come. Third little application, this isn't just for people in the West, is it? This isn't just for the Jews. This is for those people in Rome who are being pressed down and persecuted by the emperor Nero, and they're thinking, Who, who's going to come and save me? 
Well, how about the saviour of the world, the one who's promised from the beginning? So Jesus, he's the promised one. wonder who that makes him. He's also the pleasing one. Did you see that next bit of the story? Jesus came from Nazareth, got baptised, and as that was happening, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is God speaking from heaven and saying that he's pleased with Jesus. Could he say that of you? I wonder. Considering what you've done with your life so far, considering what I've done, I don't think so. There's no way I could stand there and, and hear him say that he's pleased with me. And yet with Jesus, he does. Almost before he's done anything. Still quite a young man at, at this point. And God says he's pleased with him. The things that I've done make me squirm away from God, make me not want to pray. But with Jesus, there's nothing of that. The Father opens and shines his face, gives him his spirit, and says, I'm pleased with you. And so what on earth is Jesus doing standing in the river? Do you know what those people were doing getting baptized? They were getting their sins washed away. Their sins washed away. So think about what that river represents. By all accounts, it wasn't a very nice river anyway. But it it represents all the stinking filth of humanity, all the sins and the rottenness in our own hearts that's been washed away. But Jesus, who has none of that in his own heart, he comes and stands in that river. And God looks at him and says, I'm pleased with you doing this. You want to say to Jesus, get out. Run away from these people before they infect you, before they pass on and make you unclean, before they drag you down and make you somebody not worth following. You've got to run away. But Jesus doesn't run away from the sinners and from the from the brokenness and the dirt. Jesus stays and stands in it. Do you know why? I'm afraid this is kind of spoiling the punchline of the whole book, but, but, but it's because one day he would drink all of that sin. He would take it all on himself. He would, the Bible says, become sin. And then he would give you all of his goodness in return. He would become sin so that you would become God's righteousness, his perfection, so that he would look at you one day considering all that you've done. He would look at me one day, considering all that I've done, and say to you, say to me, you are my son. In fact, hello world, this is my son. Do you want to come and see them? This is my daughter, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. There'll come a day when we stand before Jesus, and he'll say to you, if you know him and trust him, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know why he would ever say that of me, considering what I've done. But well done, good and faithful servant. Ephesians chapter 1. This is too good to skip over. This is, explains it all in a couple of verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. In love, he predestined us, chose us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He takes pleasure, he loves to do it, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves, in the beloved Come and get in with Jesus. Come and get in that river. Come and get in the fountain of his, of his blood. Come and be baptized, not just in some river, figuratively speaking, or some baptistry. Come and be baptized by Jesus' blood. Let him take your sin and give you all of his goodness. Wash you properly clean. Jesus comes and stands with us so that God can look at you and say, you are my beloved son, so that you don't have to clean yourself. You don't have to sit in the shower scrubbing yourself away. You don't have to cut or hurt yourself to punish yourself for whatever's happened, whatever you've done or whatever's been done to you because he was cut, he was bruised, he was torn for you. You can be healed because he stood in that river, because he stood on that cross and was nailed to it. So what are we going to do? Three little applications. Admire him. Come to him and 
and let him please you. Ask yourself, does he please you as much as he pleases God? Can you say, as you look at Jesus in Mark's gospel and say, wow, there is my saviour in whom I am well pleased. Can you come to him and, and do you smell when you do? Do you smell the bread of life and just want to eat it all up and be nourished and strengthened in him? Do you smell beautiful perfume and you just want to get close to him? Is he so pleasing to you that you would drop everything, however good it is, and come and follow him? So come and, and admire him. Two, are you happy to hang out with sinners as Jesus is? Do you go into the staff room where people are swearing and doing and, and talking about all sorts of things you don't really want to hear about? But do you go anyway so that you can be close to people who don't know Jesus, that you might show them him, that you might speak to them of him? Maybe your problem's the other one, that you spend too much time or a bit too much like the people who don't know Jesus. Well, come and be like Jesus in walking with God, walking purely and, and, and being somebody who can bring people out of that. You can say, look, I, I'm like this too, but I found a saviour who can wash me, who can wash you too. How much time do you spend with people who don't know Jesus? How close do you get to them? Jesus stood in the river with them and was washed over by all of their sins. And then another, maybe a little strange one, but dads especially, or parents, even if your children are all grown up, how often do you tell your sons or daughters that you love them, that you're pleased with them? No strings attached, not just when they've done something good, not just when they've pleased you, not just when you're in a good mood. But how many times have you turned to them and just told them, I love you, I'm pleased with you, just because you're my son, just because you're my daughter? The parents who do that make it much, much easier for those children to understand how their heavenly father loves them like that. So Jesus is the one who's promised. He's the one who's pleasing. He's also the one who's prepared. He goes out into the desert, into the wilderness again, and does something we could never do. He's tempted by Satan. It's not a very long story here. You can read the rest of it in some of the other Gospels. But he goes out and does what we could never do. He, he's tempted, but he wins. He stands. He defeats Satan. And so this really is a good God. This really is somebody who's far more powerful, far better than we could ever imagine. This really is somebody who's the king over everything. So he's promised. He's pleasing. He's the prepared one who gets tested and, and wins the test. And it now is powerful enough to do something about it, powerful enough to turn the world upside down. We're pretty much out of time, so I'm going to leave you to read the rest of that chapter. Um, but let me give you a couple of hints as to what's going on. Jesus does all sorts of things. He preaches. He casts out demons. He meets sick people and he heals them. He demonstrates his power over all sorts of different things. The first one of which is people. That he goes up to some disciples, well, they're not yet disciples, to some fishermen. And he says, come and follow me. And they drop everything and they follow. They don't just say, okay, yes, I agree that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and then get on with their day job. No, believing that, answering that question and saying, he is who Mark says he is, bears fruit in action. They believe that he's God, or at least they will eventually. They believe that he's special, that there's something about him that they just can't quite put their finger on, that he's worth following. And so they drop everything and they run. He has authority and power over them. He has authority over demons and spiritual forces and casts them out with a word. His preaching is unlike anything you've ever heard before. He preaches with one, as one who has authority, because he actually is the God who has authority over everything. And then when it comes to sickness, 
He just picks people up by the hand and says, come on, and the sickness goes. Sickness that doctors have spent years trying to heal. You know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is showing you what his kingdom is like. Jesus is turning the world upside down. Or is he? Actually, if you think about it, and think about this, was the world ever meant to have sickness in it? No. Was the world ever meant to have rogue spiritual forces that oppress and, uh, and make people's lives horrible? No, it wasn't. Was the world ever supposed to have people who didn't really know about God and, and couldn't understand him? No. Was the world ever supposed to have boring preaching that made you not really want to know God and kind of be switched off from stuff? No, it, it wasn't. So what is Jesus doing? He's not turning the world upside down. He's turning the world the right way up again. Do you see that? It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus is the king who comes to fix everything. It wasn't meant to be like it is right now. And Jesus comes and gives us a little taste of what it's going to be like when he fixes everything. Just a little taste for now. But you can go and read it at the beginning, at the, the, the end of chapter one. So Jesus, who is this? He's the promised one. Promised right from the first few moments of the world. He's the pleasing one. Pleasing to his everlasting Father. Is he pleasing to you? He's the one who's prepared for the task that nobody else could do. He's the one who's powerful over every atom, over every power, over every sadness. Powerful over it, king over it, to turn it the right way up again. So is he your king? Who is this, Jesus? That's a huge question. Not just for Christians, but for everyone. It's the question that hangs over you and that hangs over all of history. And the answer to that question is more important than you could ever imagine. So what will you do? You've got to hang back at a distance and just suss him out for a little bit? Okay, fine. But don't leave it too long. You can't sit on the fence with Jesus. You're either in or you're out. You're either following him or against him. So come and follow him. Come and drop everything like those disciples do and follow him. Come and stand in the water with him and say, yes, wash me so I can be clean, so I can know the Father. Who is Jesus? The answer to that question will dictate your eternity. So we better get it right. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Mark's gospel. We thank you that it's good and rich and beautiful. We thank you most of all that it shows us the Lord Jesus. We thank you that it's trustworthy, that it was written by people who met him and who had their lives completely changed, turned back the right way up by Jesus. So would you do that for us today? Father, if we're on the outskirts, just looking in and searching, would you open our eyes? Would you help us? Would you convince and persuade us that Jesus really is the Christ, the promised one who would fix everything, the Son of God. And would you so convince us that we come and fall on our knees, that we turn away, that we do what he said, that we do what John said, to repent, to turn from our current lives as they are and come and follow him. Lord Jesus, would you lift yourself up before our eyes and be glorified in our lives, that we'd go and tell everyone about you and that we would follow you with everything that we have from this day on and to the end of our lives, we pray. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.